Good morning. It is 10.25 Friday, the 7th of December in Sydney, Australia. Summer in Sydney. Beautiful day outside there. And you are listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter on the It's a Monkey podcast. I believe it is episode number nine, which is good since uh, we are still here. Thanks for all the support. Um, Usage and listener numbers are going up, so you're definitely telling your friends. We really appreciate that. We have a terrific jam-packed show for you today, um, chock full of really, really interesting things. We will be interviewing um, a few, a couple of different people. We will be talking to Franz Aman from SGI. They had an interesting, released an interesting uh, service during the elections and over Hurricane Sandy. Uh, it's something called a Twitter heartbeat where they analyzed Twitter sentiment analysis over different parts of the country. And that, that was quite interesting. We'll be talking to him. We'll be also staying along the sort of medicine and technology theme. And we'll be talking about some smart pills. And we'll be talking to someone from Proteus Digital Health. We'll be talking to the chief product officer, David O'Reilly about some technology that they've put together regarding Smart Pearls, something quite interesting. But kicking it off, we, as usual, will talk about um, some interesting news bits and pieces relating to the tech economy. Remember, you can email us at podcast.itsamonkey.com and tweet us at monkeypodcast. And with me, as always, is my co-founder in 89N, James. James, how has your week been? Oh, it's not too bad. <laughs> Pretty busy with all our, all our products, uh, making good progress. Yep, and... Uh, good to be a Friday. <laughs> good to be a Friday, absolutely. And it's still Thursday night in the States, so it's, it's always fun living in the future. Um, I've been trying to get these podcasts out a few hours after uh, publishing, so it, it stays nice and relevant. I'm hoping that next year we can stick to this fortnightly or every two-week Friday schedule. I think it seems to be working well. I think we'll stick with that. Yep. I'm also hoping in the new year we can get a new theme song and some new bits and pieces, some new ads as well. The ads are probably starting to um, get a little bit stale. Well, our ad, I should say. (laughs) Okay, so lots happening in our industry, James, this week, a huge amount. Um, The politics of social media continues with Instagram announcing that they're not going to be supporting Twitter cards. Yeah, it's interesting. So what what they've announced is that they're... Um, you know, when you used to be able to click on a tweet, you would see the actual Instagram photo within Twitter, whereas uh, they're now removing that support. So you'll now no longer be able to actually see Instagram uh, photos in your Twitter timeline, which is an interesting move by, by Instagram. It is interesting. So just to just to uh, t- uh, tell our podcast listeners, um, if up until now, if you take a photo on Instagram and you choose to share it on Twitter, it actually comes in line. Well, it has up until now. It become in line in your tweet stream so your followers can see the photo nicely um, in line. That's using something called Twitter cards. And Twitter has now pulled that. Uh, sorry, not Twitter. Instagram has said they will now not support that. It still means you can share your photo on Twitter, though. It just means that it's going to come through as a link. Yeah. So people will actually be now click through to the Instagram website. Now, Kevin Sistrom, who's the, the co-founder of Instagram, said they are doing this because previously Instagram never had a web presence at all. So there was nothing to really push people to, whereas now they're building out their web presence. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, I mean, I guess there's other probably motivating factors as well. Um, Twitter has 
put um, a lot of pressure on the social on the photo sharing space. Um, you know, using their using their system, they've put some more restrictions in just recently. Um, where if you post photos to Twitter, you have to also upload them to their service, or you have to give their services an option, or or it has to be the only service you use. There's some, something on those lines. You have to actually provide that data to Twitter if you're going to put it in line in the tweet. So I think that's probably part of uh, might be part of it. So you actually, uh, you know. Instagram are essentially just giving Twitter all of their photo data, essentially, if they kept on doing what they're doing with these new API restrictions. And, of course, Twitter, a few months ago, um, switched off the find friends on Twitter for Instagram. So they don't let Instagram users now, when they sign up, go through and find what what friends of theirs on Twitter are on Instagram and, and building up their social graph, piggybacking off Twitter. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, I mean, on one hand, you could take a look uh, and see this as kind of retaliation, I guess, for that. But um, you know, Instagram have said this; it isn't isn't related. It was just something they were planning to do all along. Um, although I guess you know, of course, the the circumstances are somewhat suspicious, given that they're now owned by Facebook. It's you know, it's it, it's the politics are, are are really becoming tricky because Instagram. Doesn't pretend it, it does have the potential in a way to really start eroding Twitter if if it becomes if people start using Instagram as a de facto tweeting tool a photo plus a tweet um, the mobile usage of, of um, Instagram versus uh, or the use of Instagram compared to the mobile use of Twitter is is incredibly strong it's greater than the mobile use of Twitter on the flip side Twitter announced that they're going to be releasing photo filters mm-hmm. as well so they they're very aware um, of the the impact of Instagram but I think you know I think these social media platforms are more exposed than people tend to think that they are people tend to think that well Twitter's established and they got a dominant um, you know place in the market but their moat is actually not as big as as people think it is no no it isn't but um i mean at the same time you know i you know i can't think of any instant instance of a, a social network that's failed because they gave too much data away or too much access away i mean if you look at sort of myspace or orcut orcut google social network i mean neither of them really failed for you know reasons that that they were too open or they like left too data and in both cases it was really just you know their feature set and in their design and sort of i guess core principles of their business that really um you know led them to not be as popular as a lot of their other competitors i agree with you and actually michael arrington posted something really interesting yesterday about um you know that web 2.0 was all about openness and apis and integration and mashups and now everything seems to be tightening and closing and how that's, it's, it's really it's heading in the, the wrong direction. It's a really interesting um, post. He, he really articulates a lot of the frustrations of us in the industry. And I think it's an excellent point you make. I mean, MySpace died because they didn't innovate and iterate, I believe. Marissa Mayer, who's uh, one of the ex-head product, guy, product people at Google, now, of course, CEO of Yahoo, she's on record saying that Orkut died because they actually didn't scale the infrastructure well enough, mm. which was really interesting for, for Google to say. So I agree with you. It's, 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 it's internal things to these networks that, that cause them to, to die, and um, it's, not, it's not their openness. <laughs> the degree of openness, I think, is, is only a benefit. And, I mean, I see in this case is... 
of you know of Instagram removing uh, their their photos from Twitter. I mean, I think that's a failure on you know on both companies' parts. I think Instagram loses out, um, but I also think they've probably been pushed into that position partly by Twitter. Like I think if both companies were more open, I think everybody would win. Um, it just doesn't seem that it definitely doesn't seem like the consumers are winning in this situation. If you have to, if you can no longer see your photos on on your Twitter stream. Um, you know, that's that's an additional pain point for consumers and, um, you know, that can't be beneficial for either Twitter or Instagram. So definite theme of, uh, you know, that needs to be addressed as, as a community, as an industry. Of course, there's a court case on at the moment where a company is suing Twitter for denying them access to their fire hose. And one of one of their, um, their legal points that they're trying to sue on is that Twitter said that they are going to have, you know, some you know an open approach quote and yeah i'm not sure if yeah. that's the exact word but it was it was it was something open and and open ecosystem I open think, ecosystem yeah. yeah um really curious to see what the courts say about that even if if uh, on the contract side of things the court will say well twitter can do what they want but i'm interested to see what comments they make about that open ecosystem um look i think i mean why do you think then if that is true about um, openness never killed a business or sharing too much d- data never n- never killed one of these social media networks Google Plus haven't opened up anything oh, well I think that's Google's uh, <laughs> modus operandi <laughs> it's just you know they, they never really release much I and mean, they still have a after all these years they've still never uh, you know released a, a proper search API sort of leveraging their, their core infrastructure I mean that's obviously a business decision but um uh, you know, it's always been a case with Google where APIs are definitely far down their priority list of opening up data. Um, I, I mean, it make it makes sense. I mean, I, it makes sense from a degree that they don't want to get stuck in the same position Twitter's in. But um, yeah, no, I still think the same thing of Google. I think if they had a had a better API, the the service would be much further ahead than it is today. They announced today that they've hit five hundred million users, Google Plus. So how many is that active users or <laughs> uh, look, I mean, that's the, the, the age old question. But, you know, in speaking with an industry leader earlier this week, he said to me, you know, which we've spoken about before, that one of the main aims of Google with Google Plus is just for people to profile themselves. Yeah. yeah. And as long as people are profiling themselves, you know, he, he says Google on a major push to to customize search results in such a you know, in such a highly calibrated manner that yeah. it's incredibly useful to them. Yeah, they don't necessarily need to be the uh, the top social network. They just need to be a social network with a with a substantial amount of data. I think that's the that's the the aim, I guess. I try to use Google Plus again this week because I really want to love it. And there's mm. something nice there, but but there's something that that really jars me in the workflow. And there's there's also something very wrong with the user experience, particularly on desktop. I actually think the mobile app on Android is actually really good. Mm. It's it's a pretty interface. I, I, pr- I think they've probably got um, out of the big big three, well, if you call them big three, the Twitter, Facebook, and Google Plus. I think Google Plus probably looks the nicest, but... Um, but yeah, there's still something core in that in that in in their sharing um, architecture of the sort of the circles that just doesn't quite resonate. I think with the average person, I think it's a very sort of developer focused uh, approach to social networking. I heard rumors that they have as many as a thousand people working on Google Plus. Well, yeah, it was. Um, I mean, from my understanding, is it's it was the it was the big push for the, um, the company, and they they pulled a lot of people off a lot of other projects in order to. 
uh, drive their their social product, which is which is Google Plus. And yeah, I think they they put a fair majority of their well, not nice majority, but a fair number of their Mountain View employees uh, on top of it. So be great if um, one person in the industry that really seems to get it is Jeff Bezos. I know mm. that uh, that he spoke at the Amazon conference earlier this week. I'll I'll put up the link. Um, as well to his talk because it was really fantastic and he he was really a terrific example of someone that gets it and is really really not driven by fear but 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 driven by innovation and the confidence in their long-term vision absolutely um you know in the talk he he had uh i think when it was it was his keynote um or, or, was another, or maybe it was another segment. But anyway, they brought um, Netflix up on stage to talk mm-hmm. about how they were using Amazon's architecture. And essentially they said, um, you know, uh, Amazon said that, you know, we, we do compete with Netflix. We have our own video streaming product. But um, they use the same infrastructure that we do, um, as in the, you know, the Amazon AWS infrastructure. And the Netflix as is as important customer to them as their own infrastructure is. And, you know, it's just such a smart, smart approach. I mean, not only are they making money off their own business, they're, they're making money off, you know, their competitors' business as well. And, you know, it doesn't really matter who succeeds in that situation. The fact that they that they own the infrastructure and they're agnostic about it just means that, you know, they, they're going to be successful, you know, no matter no matter the outcome. And, yeah, I just wish more more of these social networks took that, that approach. Um, you know, they already have the upper hand, in terms of their clients and their, their usage because they own the experience. And if they allowed, um, if, if they could convert their APIs to be more open and, and use some sort of pay-per-use model where they benefit directly from third parties, you know, leveraging their API, then, you know, it just seems like, you know, everybody would win. They would, they would win and the consumers that use it would win. So it goes back, you know, it's always a, it's, it's, it's always been a, contentious issue even in the days of analog media where you know there were campaigns that home taping is killing the music Mm -hmm. industry you know and and in real terms home taping spread music you know and um but but you can understand sort of the 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 the, the feeling of you know all this investment and r&d and and protecting the ip and it's uh I, i guess people are you know scared to you know in some level of where it where it will all end really yeah it's it's a very human approach to sort of close down and 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 minimize perceived risk but um you know as jeff bezos said it really looks it depends on the scale that you look at and if it's really sort of short-term thinking to um you know to think in these levels you really need to start thinking about you know 10 or 50 or 100 years in the future what your business is going to look like and you know what your decisions today are gonna how they're gonna affect you know the business at that point and you know if you just keep a, a broader mind of the implications and and try not to be quite as reactionary i think you know I think and, it's a good lesson and new markets get created you know there's always that, that assumption that there's you know only twitter and and you know that type of social media space but there's you know new new markets get created that that products can grow into you know it's the same when dvds or videos came out people were scared about the music industry uh, sorry the movie industry yeah but there were totally different new markets that got created that existed and actually um, enhanced each other mm-hmm. side by side so look uh, hope, hopefully things will bounce out again and and there'll be sort of another another push outward but um, I'll also put a link to the Michael Arrington article because he really 
he really encapsulates all this frustration that we're mm. talking about where there's been a, a you know a move away back from those times a few years ago where it was all about mashing up and apis and um, yeah so it's interesting i'll have to have to read his read his article um quickly just to talk about spotify we spoke last um last podcast about Spotify and how they were introducing some uh, a social sharing layer of sorts. I believe they've actually launched that. Yeah, so there's new there's new video out that they pushed up on their blog post, and uh, it looks like the way it's working is you you can follow artists, so it's a bit like a social network for for music, and uh, and then the artists obviously when they publish their songs or if they're if uh, you know they have songs they like from other artists, then they can push those to your feed. So it's some sort of sort of social networking in the in just just focused on music. I think this can be really big. I think if they get it right. I think it can be really powerful. And one thing that frustrates me in following artists on Twitter, I've got a list called um, music or something like that. And in fact, if, if um, you're listening and you follow me on Twitter, you can drill down into my lists. And two of the lists that might be interesting to you are the music list, where there's a whole heap of different musos, and the VC biz tech list, which I have a whole heap of entrepreneurs and, and VC guys. That aside, I think... Um, what, what, what I was going to say, what frustrates me about the musos that I follow on Twitter is that they just really, a lot of them just tweet out about gigs. Mm. And I and I am interested in what other music they're listening to. I am interested in what the inspirations are. I am interested in their creative process. I feel it's a real lost opportunity to really get that that, that relationship with their, with their evangelists. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I think it has a lot of promise. Um, I mean, the only thing that worries me a little bit is, um, you know, I guess I guess when I go use Spotify, I'm, I'm interested in using it more for sort of uh, consuming music I already know about. And, um, you know, there's I've already sort of started getting alerts while I was listening to other music for, you know, things in this social network, and it's kind of actually sort of taken me out of the experience. And, you know, I almost, almost want it to be a separate experience so there are times where i want to go and do the discovery stuff and times when i want to be actually listening to you know my existing playlists and just as long as they can get that implementation right i think that's that's probably the challenge for them i agree i mean there's sometimes you switch on spotify and you want to dig into that classic track when when you were at high school and that's just for whatever reason you really want to listen to that track and there's yeah. other times where you want to just the, the music discovery side of things but there is also a lot of excitement when you do discover a new band that you really love it's 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 almost like yeah absolutely yeah. It's, it's like making a new friend yeah. so we'll see if they get that right what i wanted to talk about in the new section is uh, mary mika's new um presentation now mary mika is quite a internet famous analyst i think she used to work for nielsen or i stand to be corrected but um she now works for one of the the big vc companies based in the valley and earlier this week she um presented some stats and some insights to some stanford students i will put up the link online it is a fascinating presentation she has a really terrific way of bringing together interesting stats and analysis um everyone in the industry really does follow her so i've i've um, pulled out some of the more interesting bits and pieces from her presentation um, into the insight of the current state of the internet industry which i thought we could have a um a quick chat about um her four main points of the presentation is that the, the internet growth remains robust and, of, and, of course, there's still rapid mobile adoption. 
There's a chart there that um, I've included from her presentation where she lists the countries and the population internet penetration. Now, what's really interesting about that is in a country like India, there's only 11% population penetration. Oh, wow. So you can see the potential. I mean, even though the internet is, is pervasive, in the USA, the penetration is 78%. So there's, mm. there's even still a little bit there, although you're probably reaching the point where the rest of the, you know, the population is not connected. That doesn't want to be connected, the, the remaining 22%. But India is only 11%. Indonesia is 23%. Um, some of the other low countries, Mexico, 37%. Brazil, 45%. Um, Vietnam, 35%. Yeah, China's obviously the big one with only uh, 40% penetration for their almost 300, uh, 300, what's that, million users? No, 300, yeah, 300 million uh, population. Um, No, China's population. Oh, that's something they've added. Yeah, that that might be the internet users. Anyway, um, Year-on-year growth in China, though, is 10%. In Iran, 205% growth year-on-year. Anyway, really interesting graph to look at. So that's the one thing, the point she says, the the growth is still very robust. She also talks about reimagination of nearly everything, you know, everything from user interfaces, where she said, you know, was uh, used to be just keyboard and mice, and now it's gestures and and, um, touch um, you know, health awareness is being reimagined. Where, of course, with smartphones, and we'll be talking about smart pills later on. Um, so there's there's a lot of disruption and reimagination and, and new metaphors for everything. Um, and something that I found interesting as well in her presentation that tech was really strong in America when she she talks a lot about just the U.S. towards the end of the presentation. But the rest of the states is actually is, is actually heading into a, a really problematic phase that's um, not since World War II has there been a bigger gap between revenue and expenses. So um, that was quite interesting. I'm just having a quick look. Um, of course, all the mobile stats sort of are going ballistic. Um, she says the magnitude of upcoming change um, is going to be stunning. There's, we're still just in the early days, and still, still, she says, spring training, uh, combination of the um, ubiquitous high-speed internet, global technology innovation, availability of capital, fearless and connected consumer, inexpensive devices. Um, she lists a whole range of of um, elements that are coming together. Just means that the 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 size of the change is just going to be um, going to be absolutely huge. Um, she talks about opportunities um, where they're still very much ripe for disruption. In the car, she says, in America alone, nearly an hour is spent in the car every day, and it's largely untapped in terms of innovation and, and new media consumption and, and things like that. She also talks about TV, where TV people spend three hours a day, and still there's still not you know new interfaces, new devices, etc. Um, education and healthcare, which I think are two massive, massive areas mm. where the internet almost, you know, on a superficial level, they've touched these areas just like they've touched every areas, but on a substantive, um, disruptive level, I think I think it hasn't even begun yet. Yeah, yeah. We live in interesting times. Everything changing. 
Every, everything changing. And she said, and she ultimately ends the presentation where she said, the cycle of tech disruption is materially faster and broader than prior cycles. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit disappointing that countries like Australia don't, don't, don't see all of this and yep. just really positioning themselves to take advantage of all of these changes that will come. And I think the entrepreneurs slash the countries that do um, will be in a, in a hugely advantageous position. I know Chile is funding entrepreneurs in a massive way. I believe Brazil is starting to to help out um, their entrepreneurs in really interesting ways. Um, so, you know, to build out the ecosystems um, is really important. So I'll put a link to a presentation, but really f- uh, fascinating um, overview helicopter analysis. Um, you're listening to the It's a Monkey podcast with James Peter and Kevin Garber. After the break, we are going to be talking to Franz Aman, um, who is from SGI, and we'll be talking to him about their global Twitter heartbeat project. Stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by Manage Flitter. With Manage Flitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back, find new people to follow, track keywords on Twitter, and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code MONKEY2 at Manage Flitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Thanks for joining us. You are back with the It's a Monkey podcast where we talk things, we talk about everything relating to the tech economy. And as you know, one of our favorite areas of interest is Twitter. We've built up a product around Twitter. We love Twitter for a variety of reasons. And I was, I was, interesting, I was interested to see after the elections in Hurricane Sandy, there were some interesting sentiment analysis, heat map videos that were doing the round. And I tracked down the company um, that put these together and has some of the technology behind um, the, the sentiment analysis and this heat map. So um, this is put together by a company called SGI. And on the on the line with me on Skype, um, I'm chatting to the Chief Marketing Officer, France Amant. France, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me on the program. Now, firstly, I was interested to see SGI is of some shape, manner, or form, incorporates the, the old and very sort of internet-famous silicon graphics. Am I correct? Yes, you're definitely right there. And certainly our history and legacy, uh, some may know us from Jurassic Park. And a lot of the high-end visualizations, a lot of the graphics effects for Jurassic Park and a whole bunch of other movies uh, were done on our workstations at the time. And uh, the new silicon graphics refocused very heavily on high-end, high-performance computing, everything that requires speed and scale. So we're really a server company at this point doing a lot of storage. So it's really compute and storage and complete solutions at the high end. I remember when I was at university, and this is even in South Africa, there was a silicon graphics truck that came over to campus the one day. And it was just fitted out with all this 
cool graphical gear inside and rendering things and it was really impressive at the time you guys were definitely silicon graphics were 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 out there in front uh, with very few competitors at the time Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, we're still doing some of the very high-end visualization, like cave systems and the likes, uh, for engineering simulations. And uh, companies like Sikorsky, they're doing their engineering simulations for their new Blackhawk helicopter on our system. So, you know, we're doing some of the very high-end visualization, but our main focus really is around um, high-end servers, high-end storage, and also doing quite a bit of cloud computing so a lot of the public clouds on in the in the world, there's some SGI gear running there somewhere. And I believe the Google campus in Mountain View is um, used to be a Silicon Graphics campus. Is that correct? Yeah, they actually moved into our old digs. That is correct. Uh, interesting. Well, let's let, let's talk about Twitter and your your global heartbeat, your your global Twitter heartbeat um, project. I mean, if you if you're talking about high end server and infrastructure solutions, what was the interest in you guys getting involved in this project? And tell us about the project. Yeah, I mean, for one, we love Twitter too. It's it really is a fun medium. Uh, but beyond that, we were looking for a way of showcasing some of the technology that we have. And we wanted to do something that's interesting and that's practical. So uh, one of the systems, one of the technologies that we have is a, what we call big brain system. And it, it really works very much like a big brain. Uh, we're wiring together tons of standard Intel x86 architecture CPUs and a whole bunch of memory. And... Uh, you get to use all of it. So just like on a laptop, just like on a desktop system, you put a program on the system, you run it, and it takes however much system resource it can get. It uses all the all the CPUs, all the cores, all the memory. And we have a system like that, only it's a little bit bigger. And what it does is it, it has up to 64 terabytes of main memory. And a lot of times when I talk to people about 64 terabytes, uh, they can't quite really picture that, and they think, oh, you're talking about hard disks? No, main memory. And my, it's not- my, my first PC had two megabytes with extendable to four megabytes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've, uh, we've eclipsed Come a long that. way. <laughs> we've, we've eclipsed that somewhat, indeed. Uh, so, yeah, so this, it's this beautiful opportunity where we have this huge memory space, and because we're wiring that together with all these processes, we also have amazing ingest capabilities. So we can gulp in the Library of Congress, um, of U.S. Congress, in three seconds. Yeah, that's and, remarkable. Yeah, that, that. It's, it's an astounding capability. Uh, but, you know, how do you really explain that? And how do you make that something that people can touch and feel? So we, we figured one of the biggest data sources today is social media. And it's really complex in terms of all the people involved, all the topics being discussed. So we figured that that's a great source of data. And we talked to Twitter and we said, can we get all of the tweets that um, are coming in on a daily basis for a period of you know, 20, 30 days? And there's no way to get all of it from Twitter. Uh, there's no way to, unfortunately, get that as a uh, as a commercial entity. Um, what they have, however, is called a Deca hose, and it's a 10% representative sample. Now, there's about 400 to 500 million tweets a day, and we got a 10% cut of that. 
So that's, that's I believe, through their, one of their data partners. And I saw you guys use GNIP, which I think there's three or four Twitter data partners. You're absolutely right, Kevin. So there's a, a couple of what I, was, I, I would almost call them resellers or retailers of tweets. And they distribute tweets. And you can get it filtered and you can get the 10% uh, statistical sample, the Decahose. There's different products that they offer. And it's part of Twitter's monetization strategy. I'm not sure if you saw that one of the companies that does have access to the Twitter firehose, well, they've been denied access, and there's a whole court case brewing around that at the moment. Hmm. It's uh, a company called People Browser that have, have, have built some services on the Twitter firehose. So, uh, yeah, it's, that's, that's a, whole, a whole aside, but uh, it's an interesting, yeah. be an interesting one to, one to follow. We, we, on our product, we, we access just the, the data through the API. But, yes, uh, it's, I think a lot of us would love some more Twitter data. Right, absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, we asked for everything, but we, we took the 10%, so that's, uh, that was all right. And, you know, if, if you look at Twitter data, uh, the 10% tweets on a daily basis, so 40, 50 million tweets, that's not huge in terms of data volume, right? Um, 40, 50 million times 140 characters, some metadata with it. I mean, it's not, it's not huge. Um, however, once you start getting into analysis, then the data literally mushrooms. And one of the things we wanted to do uh, was building a heat map of emotions around the globe, doing it in real time. But for that, of course, we needed uh, location data and we needed ideally GPS information. So the first thing we looked at when we looked at those uh, 40, 50 million tweets a day was what percentage of them comes with location data? And it's an astoundingly low, or maybe not so astoundingly low, 1.25%. Now, is that the location? Because there's two elements of Twitter location data. It's either geolocation where people have switched it on, so their mobile phones, etc., can tag the location. And there's also the location in the people's profile as well, which some people put their location in the profile. So which, which flavor of location are you talking about? Yeah, so we started with the GPS location that comes from smartphones. Right. I mean, so many, you know, so many people use their smartphones to tweet. It's, it's the default platform. But most people, I guess, just don't want to be found when they tweet. So they uh, tend to not allow Twitter or their tweet app to post their GPS information. So, you know, of course, re realizing that, we said, okay, we're going to have to go beyond that to plot a geographical heat map. And then exactly as you mentioned, next step for us was, well, let's look at the profile of the user. And if there's location information for the user, we'll take that. But beyond that, we also analyzed every one of the tweets and we looked for location information in the tweet in the text itself. So if someone was talking about Boston Harbor, then we would geotag that automatically to the GPS coordinate for Boston Harbor. And I mean, what what, what I'm interested in is I, I looked at your heat maps for Sandy and the elections and 
Um, what what surprises you know? Because I think that this is where data becomes really interesting. Because there was obviously a lot of obvious data that gets revealed that people on the east coast were tweeting more about Hurricane Sandy, and you know people on the east and west coast were tweeting more about the Democrats. What what surprises did the data reveal in both of these use cases? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so a couple of things, and you know, uh, even the location part was interesting because. With all the changes we made with doing the text analysis, the geotagging, we got to 25% geotagging on all tweets, right? Uh, which is a long way from 1.25%. So uh, quite a bit that you can do by analyzing the tweets and the user profiles. Now, beyond that, we looked at the emotions. So we did sentiment analysis of the tweets. And you can't simply apply traditional sentiment analysis technology to tweets because tweets are extremely short. So if you only have 140 characters to work with, you need to understand emoticons, you need to understand even temporary little snippets like, um, you know, in in the U.S. around the elections, to show political association, uh, people use some very minimal things like P2, D2, whatever, small abbreviations that if you were clued in, told you something, but it's not something that traditional software would understand. So we built a custom dictionary uh, to do a better job in analyzing the sentiment for those tweets. And then the some of the fascinating uh, results that we got was, um, I mean, there were some of the obvious, of course, and you mentioned that already, the sentiment was the worst around, for example, the landfall of the Hurricane Sandy so that hit home really hard, and we saw a lot of red, a lot of negative sentiment in those spots. But then we also found quite a bit of a positive sentiment within all the red, within all the negative. And we zoomed in on some of that, and uh, people were tweeting about, well, hey, we're okay. We're doing fine. At least we have food, even though we're out of power. And that would register positively. We also found that in other places, people were impacted, not directly by the storm, but the specifics were around air travel and around uh, problems like that. So um, some of the other interesting things we found, and this was you know, a little side effect, um, but one thing that showed up was that retailers were trying to ride on some of, the, some of what happened around Sandy, and they tweeted offers, and they tweeted... Um, they tweeted things that were commercially oriented. And the backlash from the people impacted was just tremendous. Right. And, you know, seeing that and seeing that in real time uh, was fascinating because if, if you're a retailer, if you're a big brand and you're getting into using Twitter for marketing, I mean, you better look at that in real time. You better look at the sentiment and what's happening because the backlash can be tremendous. I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing not to piggyback off of something like that. So uh, I'm surprised that that some people were trying to be that opportunistic. Uh, one would think, but uh, common sense doesn't always prevail. And in some cases, companies also set up Twitter bots. And the Twitter bots, they automatically try to figure out what can they do with whatever is happening. And they make something out of it. And the outcome isn't always pretty. So if, if you have a machine respond to tweets and very emotional situations, uh, that can really backfire too. 
So what are you guys going to do with this technology? Are you just going to keep it for, for special events? Are you going to license it? Or do, you, do you plan on actually you know, turning it into a full-blown product? Well, for one, I'm planning to call the CMO on Twitter and see if he wants one. <laughs> but you know, aside from that, um, for us, it was interesting. It was a great showcase. We learned quite a bit. I think we uh, also helped people understand um, how real-time and how massive this whole Twitter universe is and how, how, how very much in real time you can understand people's reactions, hopes and fears around the globe. Um, you could also see things like the, the trends you see, they aren't really um, big monolithic blobs. You have quite a bit of jiggling back and forth and uh, it, it's interesting to see the back and forth of different opinions on Twitter. So hopefully we help people understand a little bit more of what's going on there and I think we did showcase uh, very successfully what you can do with one of these big brain systems. So, you know, certainly um, we look at that as a great product showcase as well. And we'll certainly leverage that from a just, you know, marketing perspective and uh, tell our customers and our prospects about it. I think, you know, the whole real-time nature, real-time, you know, which was a little bit sexier a couple of years ago, but it's still definitely, you know, I think we've almost very quickly learned to take it for granted. But in the very early days of Twitter, when I was championing it, I would bring a friend in and, you know, and they'd go, oh, I don't understand how this Twitter thing works. And I would always hop onto the Twitter search engine and I'd put in a search term about Bondi Beach or something that was relevant to us and just immediately they saw someone tweeting about Bondi in the last uh, half an hour and that, that real time nature of it is, is, has been incredibly disruptive and I think the opportunity is there we're only scratching the service, surface I mean states and federal governments you know they I would imagine that there's huge applications for them to take advantage of real time streams like this I totally agree with you. And uh, as a matter of fact, some of our customers in the federal space or in the public sector space, they are doing some of that today. And we're seeing more and more examples of that. Uh, you know, around relief, uh, disaster relief, around responding in, a most, in the most effective way to catastrophes. Um, Twitter is, is, is a way of, you know, very quickly understanding what's going on. And there were some interesting examples that we saw, like, uh, people tweeted about uh, where they found the shortest lines on gas stations and where it was the easiest to get gas. And it, it almost turned into this uh, public broadcast network that helped people figure out their way through the day and make the best of it. So I think we need to also leverage Twitter much more aggressively to understand the impact and how we can respond effectively to bad situations when something happens. Um, there's some interesting examples also around, um, I believe it's the geological sur uh, service in the U.S. where um, they used to send out surveys to understand whether someone felt an earthquake and what the impact was. Now it's as easy as just record the tweets around an earthquake and figure out where the tweets came from and what the impact was. And it's a lot more immediate and it's uh, it's it's very much um, a true representation of what people see and feel and experience. It's almost you know if people haven't been to California, they um, you know just to let them know that there's almost you know definitely weekly seismic activity there, and it's almost and most of them are very very minor, and it's 
it's almost uh, uh, it's almost fun to be in in California in in the, with when there's a minor little little shake because Twitter immediately you just you just watch your Twitter stream and everyone just immediately just puts uh, earthquake question mark and it's you yeah I, I would imagine for the for the geological um, people there, it's it's life's changed very significantly in the data that they can obtain. Yeah, yeah, and you know you can also participate in events that are happening on the other side of the globe. I mean, it's it's just such a global, uh, immediate, real time medium. It's um, it, it made for a fun project and and use case. And you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of uh, companies are getting into analyzing tweets about their brand. Uh, their social media impact, and from a public sector perspective, yeah, seeing a lot of interest there as well. The tricky thing is, you know, is Twitter's almost becoming like a, 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 you know, a public good in a sense. But yes, it's a yet it's a commercial company as well, you know. So it's it's there's this inherent tension. They almost, um, you know, land up having all this data that's so in the national interest, but yet it's still it's a commercial company. It's going to be interesting to see what plays out in that sense mm-hmm. yeah i think that's an excellent point and who and and you know some uh we saw it in the election and some of the work that we did around the election um obama versus romney um it was interesting to see how i think the democrats made a lot more efficient use of twitter and if if you can harness the power of a capability like that it, it does make a difference. The one thing that I would like, though, is online voting. I mean, surely, surely the time has come to actually just to be able to vote online. Uh, there's well, in the U.S., I can tell you that much. Uh, there are definitely electronic voting booths and electronic uh, capture uh, capabilities, uh, but not online because you can't identify the individual reliably on the other end of uh, of an internet pipe. So I think there's um, we're going to have to give up biometrics if we want to go there. But surely you can identify people as well as you can identify them. I mean, in, in real life, people can also pretend to be someone else and be very creative about how they do that. That is true. Well, it's, uh, I, know, I know one way of making conversation in the U.S. is to say you're from Australia, where it's a country that voting is compulsory. And that always intrigues um, Americans. They, they struggle to get their head around that concept. <laughs> I, actually, I actually got a fine the other day from when I was in the U.S. and there was a state election and I didn't vote. And they sent me a fine saying you didn't vote, $55 fine. I just have to send in my air ticket and they'll, they'll wave me over that. But it's... Uh, yeah, it is quite a different voting culture between the two countries. <laughs> that very much is. Uh, I actually was not aware of it. I didn't know that. That's interesting, yeah. Franz, I really appreciate your time. Um, uh, if uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch and see what other, what other projects you guys are involved with. And uh, thanks for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. Hey, thanks, Kevin. It was fun talking to you. Goodbye. Thank you. Bye. James, I know uh, we've chatted a bit about sentiment analysis. Um, do you think they got it right? Do you think they provided value with what they what they did there? I mean, is it providing anything useful and real? Um, it, it's a hard question to answer. I mean, there's definitely some value that's that's coming out of it. I wouldn't say that uh, it's it's 
it's reached its peak yet. I think there's a lot further that we can go in terms of the sentiment analysis work. Um, I, I think I think there's definitely valuable insights they're getting out of it. I mean, you can just look at stuff like uh, you know that bit where he, where he's mentioned. Um, you know, monitoring of earthquakes using uh, tweets, um, you know, to actually tell whether the earthquake's being felt in certain locations. And I mean, those kind of concrete things that you can very easily sort of measure semantically, I think there's great progress being made. Um, you know, I still think that, um, you know, from my own experience with the technology of sentiment analysis, we've still quite a long way off any kind of accuracy in terms of, you know, determining the real uh, the real meaning behind a tweet is just the whole goes back to the whole natural language processing problem. I mean, we're a lot better than we were, you know, five or even two years ago. But um, you know, still, when you you look at the data that comes out of any of these systems, you can you only need to look through about you know ten pieces of data to see one that it's marked wrong. It's only you know it's, it's still incorrect. You know, uh, quite a huge you know huge amount of time. So. Um, yeah, it's the technology is still quite a way off, but it's it is starting to add value. I can definitely see areas where it's starting to add value. Um, you're obviously aware of Silicon Graphics, the old Silicon Graphics company. Um, sound name sounds familiar, but Jurassic Park. I think I think they were famous for the animation in Jurassic Park. Okay, so they were, I think, in the '90s, they were the leading. You know, they were doing all this cutting edge animation graphics rendering i mean as i said in the interview um even in south africa they they had some sort of presence and they came around with a with a van filled with all this cool gear and animation stuff this is in the in in the mid 90s um and this company is landed up is some derivative of what silicon graphics is i mean somehow i'm not exactly sure of the history of why it um sort of just uh, what exactly just led to its, you know, mm. shrinking. And as I mentioned in the interview as well, the, the current Google campus in Mountain View is the Silicon Graphics, the old Silicon Graphics. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Campus. That's cool. So, um, yeah, it's, I, I was quite interested just to speak to them, just knowing that uh, Silicon Graphics was really, it was one of the sexy companies, mm. if, if not probably the sexiest, because mm. it, was, it just really seemed to be out there in a league of its own. So I should probably look up the Wikipedia entry and um, see what actually happened, why it seemed to do a left turn. And, and I guess that's the industry we're involved with. Things, things move up and down really, really fast. Um, Okay, after the break, I'll be talking with, I spoke earlier this week with David O'Reilly, who's the Chief Product Officer at Proteus Digital Health. And um, they're doing some interesting bits and pieces with uh, smart pills and sensors, etc. So uh, stay with us. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by ManageFlitter. With ManageFlitter, you can easily find out who isn't following you back. Find new people to follow. Track keywords on Twitter and schedule tweets for the most appropriate times. Tweet code monkey2 at ManageFlitter to receive a one-month free budgie account. Welcome back to the It's a Monkey podcast. You're listening to Kevin Garber and James Peter. Now, one of the areas you probably notice that we cover quite regularly is the coming together of technology and health. Even though we talk a lot about the tech economy, we love to see how technology actually impacts health and the quality of life. And there's some really exciting developments that, for whatever reason, don't tend to bubble up 
that much through to people that are involved in the internet side of things. We spoke a few weeks ago about all the exciting innovation in stem cells and how regular stem cells are, are being activated through some interesting technologies to, to become um, stem cells. I came across an interesting article in Inc. Magazine, which, by the way, if you're a wannabe entrepreneur um, or an existing entrepreneur that doesn't read that magazine regularly, it is definitely the one magazine to read. And I came in across an interesting article about a smart pearl that had, seemed to have some really interesting technology around it. So I tracked down the company, which uh, is in the Bay Area, which, uh, which, which is always uh, fascinating how many, how many companies on the leading edge are in the Bay Area. And I tracked down the company. Um, behind this technology, which is Proteus Digital Health. And I'm happy to say we've got the Chief Product Officer, David O'Reilly, uh, on the line, who leads the company's product development, business development, and corporate strategy areas. And David, thank you very much for joining us on the It's a Monkey podcast. And I'd love you to give us an overview of the smart pool, because I, I found it absolutely fascinating. Uh, it's my pleasure, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Um, so, uh, we've created actually more than what you called a smart pill, uh, but a, a digital health feedback system um, is is what we refer to, and it's really an integrated uh, system uh, that includes uh, uh, an ingestible sensor that can be combined with really anything you ingest. And we're starting with uh, medicines, uh, and a wearable sensor, uh, as well as a, a mobile uh, uh, application product. And what this allows uh, us to do, and product developers, is to create something which can precisely measure uh, your choices and your decisions on how and when, for example, to um, take your medicines or other things you ingest, um, how your uh, body responds, because with the wearable sensor, we're monitoring uh, your physical activity and your sleep patterns and um, other things related to your physiology, and then to uh, bring that information uh, out of your body and um, to the cloud and then to uh, mobile applications that help you or your loved ones or your other professional caregivers to uh, really be better manage your um, health care. So I, I, read an, uh, I read a case study on your site about someone that had a, a relatively severe mental illness and how some of your technology is helping her. Can you give us some, some real case examples of how your technology is already improving the quality of life of people? Well, those, those are examples that, that are in development now. They're not right. commercially available yet or approved yet. Um, uh, the fundamentals of our, our system, like the ingestible sensor and the wearable sensor, are approved uh, medical devices, and we're working uh, with regulators and um, uh, with partners to advance combinations of those with products like a, a mental health uh, system and other things in the heart failure space and other chronic diseases uh, to create these kinds of uh, digital health products that can can really help somebody um, uh, manage their day-to-day -day lives. Uh, it's really complicated to manage a chronic disease um, with the issues you have to manage, with the um, uh, many medications you might need to take, with understanding how those different medications at different doses um, and your other choices in your life, like your, your level of physical activity and your sleep patterns, are actually going to um, impact uh, your disease uh, to try to live a better life. And so we believe that this is really an information-based problem, um, that people, given better information uh, about their health care, can make uh, better decisions and collaborate 
uh, in better ways with um, the people who are trying to take care of them. I've always, you know, wondered about pearls, and I've always felt, especially in in this day and age, they seem a little bit archaic in the in the sense that they. Um, it's it's sort of like trying to fix a car by throwing you know a, a whole range of tools at them and hoping one of them sort of hooks on and grabs it and, and fixes the product. So that's why I was I was excited to see that there seems to be you know your technology allows for for intelligent calibration and feedback as you say um, of 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 the sort of process. But let's let's just I'd I'd be interested in in looking at the actual process that was. Um, Articulated in the, in the in the Inc. magazine article, sort of. So, if we can look at one particular example around the type of smart pull, so to speak. So, the first step is um, you'd you'd have a, a pull with a sensor on. Is that correct? Yeah. So, the first step is is the um, the idea that you have uh, this ingestible sensor um, that's a very safe, very tiny. Um, a device about the size of a grain of sand composed right. entirely from things that are already in um, your diet uh, and which can be combined with uh, uh, something else like a medicine. Okay, so let's say for argument's sake, in this case, it's combined with the medicine that's perhaps for a diabetic or something like that, and they ingest the pill. Now, now, once it gets ingested, I find the next step really fascinating that, that the stomach fluid actually activates the sensor then yes and um, what's happening here is is really um, high school science uh, in actual fact and so uh, what's happening here is you've got uh, two um, uh, uh, minerals uh, essential minerals uh, um, that you might find in a vitamin for example that are um, metals that um, act as an anode and a cathode and um, need an, an electrolyte uh, to create a power source. And that electrolyte is, is your body and the wet environment of your stomach. And you might recall uh, making a, a potato battery or a lemon battery uh, as a kid, and the principle is the same here. Okay, so the, um, the sensor gets powered by the stomach fluid, which is sort of maybe high school science, but it's still, it's, it's still pretty cool, slash maybe perhaps a little bit spooky to some people. Um, but the sensor gets activated, and then the sensor communicates with a patch that the person's wearing. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And it's not um, communicating by way of something like a, a radio, right. um, uh, like, like an RFID tag would. In this case, it's uh, creating a, a, a pulse, uh, an electrical signal that's really like a man-made heartbeat. And so it's just contained within your body, and uh, uh, your body is a great conductor of electrical signal, signals, uh, your, your, your heart, your brain. And in this case, uh, there's a very specific uh, uh, digital information which is being now communicated from your stomach uh, in your body tissue and which can be picked up by... Uh, the wearable sensor that you would wear on your skin. So it communicates something back to the sensor, and then does the sensor communicate back? Um, to, sorry, to the, it communicates to the patch, and then does the patch communicate back to the sensor and 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 guide it what type of release to to perform? No, not at this stage. Um, right. right now, we're asking the ingestible sensor to identify itself with a unique uh, digital uh, signature. Right. Uh, so um, that, that unique digital signature is what's being communicated to the uh, wearable uh, product, uh, which is then relaying that information onto 
um, another device like your mobile phone or your uh, or your computer. Okay, great. So, so in 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 this particular instance, it would be useful for people, um, for nurses or, or 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 kids with elderly parents to just actually even just track what type of medical, um, the, the, you, you know, how they've ingested and maintained their medical protocol. Is that correct? Yeah, there's huge variability in how and when people take their medicines. Gotcha. And um, all of us have that. And if you look at the statistics uh, in the clinical literature, um, most of us get uh, it about right about 50% of the time. So um, um, the medicines are, are taken at the right doses at the right time um, about 50% of the time. And if, so uh, that means that another 50% of the time we're, we're not as individuals, as patients, as consumers getting any benefit from the medicines that have been prescribed to us. And so that creates a lot of variability in, um, in, in, in the effectiveness of those medicines, but also in the judgment of, say, a physician that you're working with on um, whether you are on the right dose of a, a medicine, uh, whether you should be switched on to a different drug, uh, whether you should be taking additional medicines. It, there's a lack of information on cause and effect based on that huge variability, and that's part of the problem we're trying to solve. So a patient may come to the doctor and say, my issue is not sorted out, and I've, I've done everything that you've said I should do, and the doctor can check and actually see that they, they actually haven't been taking the pills, so the issue is not so much that they're on the wrong medication, but there's, there's an issue with taking the medication. Yeah, and, and oftentimes they, they are uh, taking the medicines and they're still not doing well. And, of course, um, physicians know those statistics as well, and it creates a lot of confusion about how to get people on the, the right um, set of medicines at the right doses uh, taken at the right time to, to really be effective in the real world. Now, I saw you guys had uh, you got a heap of venture. You're backed by some uh, venture capital companies. Have, have So you're obviously doing some really smart innovation. And um, have you guys managed to make this at a, at a cost-effective price point? I would imagine that is quite a big, um, important barrier to overcome. Yeah, it's it, by design. Uh, we've, we've, we've been working to create um, a platform, a product platform that fits into the the cost structures of existing um, medical products and existing and existing pharmaceuticals, and the volumes of these pharmaceuticals uh, that are manufactured and and prescribed and taken globally is massive, uh, and so we've created a uh, a system based on semiconductor and um, consumer electronics based manufacturing principles. Um, which scales to very, very large quantities at very, very low cost per unit. Um, and so we're able to, to do this um, to make it very broadly available in a very inexpensive way. And when, when are the first commercial um, versions of this product or applications with other pills, etc., going to see the light of day? So we have a, a set of products that we have developed and are launching. Some of those products which are launching... Um, as we speak, uh, uh, use the ingestible and wearable uh, sensors in the digital health feedback system that we've created, um, not integrated into uh, actual medicines, but um, uh, co-packaged with those medicines. And those products are launching uh, now in different geographies, uh, first in Europe, actually. 
Um, the other more integrated product systems where the ingestible sensor is co-manufactured with uh, medicines are in development now, and uh, we're working on those to um, release uh, into the market in the years to come. David, I'd like to ask you just a, a question on the, the broader trend. And, you know, there's been a few years ago, there was this great promise of biotech really impacting our life. And somehow that that sort of fizzled. But I, I sense there's 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 a lot happening in the, the coming together of technology and medicine. What's what's your view on the state of play of, of, of that industry, the industry that you're involved in? Well, I think, you know, I'm not sure I agree with you on, on the impact of biotech. I think if you look at um, most of uh, pharmaceutical development and medicine today, um, you're seeing a, a really enormous impact of the last uh, 20 or 30 years of the molecular uh, and genomic sciences um, uh, in terms of new medicines uh, uh, based on uh, biotechnology and based on, on how molecular diagnostics and genomics are are creating personalized medicines and tailored care. A lot of those principles actually um, uh, found their, their, their origins in um, uh, not just the traditional pharmaceutical and, and medical device industries, but in, in other fields like high technology um, uh, and, uh, and the information sciences uh, and software development. And so I really see what's happening now with companies like Proteus as a continuation of that trend where um, different disciplines um, involved in technology, electronics, information sciences, uh, and data sciences are really impacting uh, healthcare so that um, uh, embedded uh, digital technology makes products um, more effective, it makes them safer, it makes them more personal and more connected, um, and ultimately um, uh, the information layers associated with those products and their personalization um, really leads to lower costs and, and, and much better outcomes for everybody. Are there security issues around, you know, wrapping a, a technology layer around things like, you know, pills and, and, and ingestibles and things like that? I mean, do, is there some exposure to hacking on some level? Um, I think whenever you have connected products um, and you are uh, 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 creating information based on their use and, and, and that, that is personal to an individual, one has to be very um, uh, careful and very aware of, of the potential issues that will we'll create. I think the great benefit that the health space uh, has is that many of these questions and many of these issues have already been things that have been um, debated and worked on and invested in by uh, before us uh, over the last 10 to 20 years in things like the financial services industry um, and uh, everything that has happened in financial services and security and personal information you know, over that period of time. And so we get to um, take advantage of that uh, trillions of dollars of investment in answering those very questions in these other areas that are really important to all of us as consumers and as individuals. I guess the difference is, though, um, you know, there still are some, um, you know, some breaches of financial security systems every now and then, and perhaps credit card numbers get exposed. But with this sort of stuff, people people can die, which probably scares, um, you know, some people a, a little bit more. 
Well, um, I, I, again, I, I think one needs to approach these things and, and sort of embrace the problem and get it right and, and learn from the mistakes of the past in other fields and, um, and continue to work on it. But the benefit to people and the need that it's, it's uh, filling is just so great that um, we really have to do that. We really have to, 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 to embrace those issues and, and find solutions to them because there's really no, no other option um, in order to uh, deliver better health care to a larger number of people and, and make it more personal and more effective. I agree. The impact to people's lives with chronic health problems is potentially significant, and I guess that's what healthcare should really be about: is 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 improving the quality of life and the baseline quality of life. And if it does that, it's uh, the the benefits uh, the benefits are, are, are really worthwhile. Um, David, I really appreciate your time joining us. It's it's a really a fascinating area, and I'll definitely keep an eye out on some of your products. And uh, when you have some interesting innovations, feel free to reach out to us. We'd love to talk with you more. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Appreciate your time. Thanks, David. Bye-bye. Bye. Um, James, what do you think about smart pills and sensors to your iPhone and monitoring when you take medication? I want one. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd love a pill that you know I could take in a, or even a pill or just something that you sort of put under your skin and it just sort of monitors all of your sort of core body functions and use a sort of data analysis to figure out when something's going wrong or, you know, or let you know if you're having a heart attack or something like that. I mean, these things aren't always, you know, obvious. It can, even though we kind of live in our own bodies, there's lots that sort of, uh, you know, opaque to us. You can't see a lot of the the depth inside of it. And, you know, if we had something that we could sort of, um, something that was really easy to, to take with you, like like a pill or, or yeah, actually, no, a pill, a pill is probably the perfect thing. You know, you just take it like, you know, once a week or something, and you have the data appears in your smartphone. I, I love this description of the smart pill here. I, I don't know why I'm so intrigued by it, but it goes, instead of a battery, the sensor is powered by stomach fluid. <laughs> so That's brilliant, yeah. Um, so, you know, the your stomach fluid activates the sensor and the power, and it's just high school chemistry. Um, but yeah, look, I think I think this area is is about to explode. Obviously, having the smartphones and you, you you got that on you the whole time, and in terms of alerts and notifications, and um, I can certainly see in the not too distant future where your vitals are, are constantly monitored. And I agree, you know, to to I, I'm fascinated by productivity and and um, you know health and quality of lifestyle and all those things. And if if you could be monitored in terms of everything from from times you should sleep or eat more drink more just really squeeze more productivity i mean i think that's the spirit of healthcare is quality of life Mm, absolutely and there's lots of interesting things you can do already if you if you're conscientious enough to sort of monitor and log all of your activity you know you can really look at find patterns in your own in your own body your own activity it's just um uh, I, I know personally, I'm just not. Uh, I just can't can't keep that up. I can probably do it for like a day, logging my meals or whatever, and my activity and mood and that kind of stuff. But you know, I just need something automatic that does it for me, and then I can go in, you know, once a month and sort of review, um, you know, what's worked well or what hasn't. You know, that that would be my ideal for one of these these devices. Um, 
I think it's a really interesting area and I, I, I'll continue to try find interesting bits and pieces to talk about for the podcast because I think it's 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 really poised if uh, if it wasn't such a capital intensive industry mm. you know it's, it would be a terrific industry for us to to get involved with but it is the, the type of industry you really need to do some expensive R&D absolutely um, but it's um, yeah it's, it's certainly it's certainly um, it's only is going to change everything. Yeah, humans. I mean, I've I've got a sleep. Uh, I've got one of these watches. I forget what it's called, uh, but it's a watch that you that you wear, and before you go to sleep, you set the time that you'd like to wake up within a window period of say ten or twenty minutes. So if you set it for eight a.m., it will wake up wake you up any time between quarter to eight and quarter past eight, and it monitors your sleep patterns. Mm. Sleep tracker. Yeah, monitors your sleep patterns. And it wakes you up within that window in a, in in the time that it, it's hoping is the best time to wake you up in the lightest. I think it's the lightest part of your sleep mm-hmm. that tries to wake you up. And then you can download the data, and it's quite interesting to see your sleep patterns, etc. Um, and you can track that. And I don't know if it's just the placebo effect or it actually is doing something. But when I do remember to wear it, I actually do wake up seemingly a little bit more refreshed Mm. yeah it's interesting i mean there's definitely um you know i've looked at studies these things they definitely help but the data that they rely on um you know when they're watches um is they're not they're not obviously monitoring your brainwave patterns they're just looking at movement Mm. and um you know i guess it's kind of like trying to count the number of cars going through a freeway by by monitoring the noise type thing if you can't actually see them like you can kind of get an estimate but it's not it's not entirely accurate you're never going to be you know particularly um good at looking at it and um you know as these devices evolve you know if if we get something that actually read the the brainwave patterns you know like uh, the same things if you'd had you know sensors all over your over your forehead and that that kind of stuff you need something on that sort of level to really be um good at that kind of analysis um, and yeah, I mean, the technologies are always improving. I know the, the more modern ones are getting a lot better at it. I used to use one that was just, um, a sleep track on my iPhone. You just left it on the bed and it would just monitor mm. the sort of the vibrations on the bed to figure out when you're awake or not. So, but yeah, no, it's an interesting area. I'm, I'm fascinated by it too. Um, interesting announcement to make regarding the next podcast, episode number 10, which is, uh, we've managed to um, organize an interview with the CEO and founder of Evernote, Phil Libin. Yep, be great. Um, Evernote, obviously a fantastic company, fantastic product. It has grown um, in, in, in a huge amount of ways. Interesting history and he's, a, he's a behind that company and he's a, he's a really fascinating entrepreneur and CEO. Mm. So um, really excited to be able to interviewing him, interview him. We'll be interviewing him over Skype. He's based in the Bay Area. And he's just got a really insight into growing companies, um, into managing people, into his product. I know he talks about that he's trying to build his company with a with a hundred year view. We spoke about that earlier in the podcast, where you know we're talking about the long term view of things, which allows you to really make make good decisions. Mm-hmm. Um, so episode number ten, don't miss it. We will be tweeting out reminders about it, um, but that's going to be a really special interview. Um, in episode number 10 with Phil Libin from Evernote. But 
I think we're at the end of this week's podcast. Been a jam-packed podcast. Um, please tweet us. Please email us. Uh, we love hearing from you. We love suggestions. If you know someone we should interview, let us know. If you are some, if you are someone we should interview and talk to, let us know. And um, until next time, in two weeks when the podcast number ten with Phil Libin will be out. Um, thanks for listening, and it's goodbye from Kevin and James. Have a good week. <laughs>